Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is Isaiah 9, 2-7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian, for every boot in the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned for fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Kids, you're dismissed to King's Quest while the rest of us are seated. Thank you, Kayla. That was a beautiful reading. Though I did hear when she was done and walking, run. She said, run, get out of here. <laughs> it's not easy, and I appreciate, I appreciate that. Um, let's pray, and then we'll get into the word this morning. God, you are the one whom we worship, whom we adore, to whom we are grateful that you are with us. Thank you for being that type of God. Amen. God is with us. Um, So every year, Christmas happens, Advent happens, and every year, these are what the conversations look like, at least on staff, when it comes. Oh, yeah. Advent is coming. We need to start preparing for it. We need to start getting ready. And we tried this year really hard to start early for the preparation of it. And we did, actually. We had a conversation, which is also called preparation, I guess. Uh, and we just said, okay, we're going we're gonna to be on it this year. And what's crazy about preparation, what's crazy about getting ready, is it always feels like there's more to do, uh, that you're never quite ready for what is going to happen or take place, um, but you are both waiting for it, preparing for it, and then when it happens, you're somehow even still in the midst of it, waiting to see how it goes and what will take place. And as I was thinking about the larger preparation of Advent for Christmas in general, it really makes me think of this season as a whole that, like I said earlier, we have been given as a gift to force us to stop, to wait, and to attend to the incoming presence of God. And as I said, our theme is awaiting the light. This journey from darkness to the invading light of Jesus, to the ongoing present light of Christ in us, the church, to the future light when God will make all things new. And in order to do that, we need to first attend 
to that place before the light. Episcopalian preacher, priest, a woman named Fleming Rutledge, says this. Every year, Advent begins in the dark. Now, if you were to look at the lectionary readings, like in the liturgical greater church, uh, they, they go through a lectionary, and often the lectionary readings leading up to Christmas aren't all happy and joyful and exciting. They actually attend to the darkness, to the way things seem to still be. As if to say that we need to attend to the darkness if we're going to receive the light that Christ actually is. Advent is a really tricky season because it's one of those where, where we are forced to attend to both realities, which we talk a lot about here at Grace. This already and this not yet. Because Advent says every year we wait for the coming of Jesus and we proclaim and celebrate that Jesus has come, that God, Emmanuel, God with us, has come to us in Jesus, that the, that the kingdom has broken into the present which means life and wholeness and healing and sight and the ability to hear. And that's all good news, but it actually raises more questions. Well, if that's true, if God has come to us in Jesus, then why are things the way they still seem to be? Why am I still the person I wish I was not? Why am I still selfish? Why am I predisposed to being or acting or talking in ways I wish I wouldn't? Why is our world filled with hatred and racism and abuse and violence and people turned in to themselves and in violence toward one another? Why are things that way? Advent both tells us that God has come to us in Jesus, and then at the same time, by doing so, raises a whole list of other questions that Advent forces us to attend to. Kate Bowler, a university professor at Duke, who's written on the North American church and the prosperity gospel, which is a gospel that talks about we can earn God's favor or God's health and and wellness um, and wealth if we had a certain type of faith. She's done a lot of research um, in that realm. And she says, and she's written on suffering, and she says that there are three questions that everybody asks in the midst of suffering. And they're very simple, really. Why? God, are you here? And what does this suffering mean? Now, before the light and attending to the darkness, this is where Advent places us. These are the questions that Advent forces us to reckon with. Why, God, are you here? And what does this suffering mean? Now, I know some of you, maybe who've been in church for a long time or who are just now stepping foot in church because it's the Christmas season, you're thinking, wow, why the downer, guy? Um, do, Do you have something out for Christmas? Did something happen and so you just want to ruin it for everybody? Is that, what's your deal? Blame Advent, actually. (laughs) Don't blame me. Blame the fact that we, as a church, as the people of God, are forced to begin here. That we are forced to look into the face of the world as it really is. 
and to say, okay, God, you have come in Jesus, but why are things the way they still are? Are you even here in the midst of it? And what does all of this brokenness, this suffering, what does it mean? This is where Advent forces us to begin. This is what our tradition as a church throughout time and history has, this is where it forces us to start. Because what I think Advent offers us as a Christianity is a faith that makes it possible for us to look into the face of these difficult questions. And even in there, find the very presence of God and find and discover the possibility of hope. Now, if we were to look at the text that was read this morning and to consider it for a moment, it begins this way. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. See, as much as we wish it were different, darkness is before the light. Twice, darkness is named, and twice, light is named. But it's almost as if the the light can't be understood or seen as great unless the darkness was there before it. Those walking in darkness, a great light has shined. That darkness precipitates light. And therefore, we, before we attend to the incoming invading presence of Christ, before the light that has come to the world, we need to address the darkness. In John 1, it says that the light of the world, that Christ is the light of the world, and the light has shined, and the darkness cannot overcome it. That doesn't mean much, unless we're honest and truthful about the way things are. Unless we're honest and truthful that there is a darkness in which Christ needs to continue to come. So this text in Isaiah speaks to the exile of God's people, of Israel. They found themselves because of their own twisted hearts, because of their own sin, in exile and away from what they perceived to be God's presence. Where was God in this? They are outside of their ways of being, outside of their temple. So where is God actually in our exile? And they are wandering and they are questioning And so this text comes to them that these people walking in darkness, in exile, have seen a great light. And in many ways, this is why in in the history of the church, and you will hear in our readings, we're both reading Old Testament texts as well as New Testament texts because the people of Israel, in some ways, mirror our lives as God's people. That there's this way in which being with God requires or at least involves wondering, questioning, wandering, and this feeling of displacement. Do you ever feel as a Christian living life with God that you are displaced? Do you ever feel as if we, we acknowledge or attend to these things and sing about these wonderful truths and you're sitting in, in there right now listening to those words wondering if you can actually sing them truthfully or honestly? As somebody who's walked with Jesus for a long time, do you ever find that there are seasons in your life where you just wonder, is this whole thing made up? Have I been living a lie? Is this really what people call like inoculation? Like I'm just not really willing to fess up 
to the randomness and the chaos of the world? Am I using Christianity as a crutch? Do you ever feel or wonder if that's possible? If that's what your faith is actually leading to? I mean, if you're wondering that, those are the questions that Advent forces us to ask. Okay, in the darkness, God, where are you? If, this really, if you really have come to change the world, then why are people still being diagnosed with diseases that are life sentences, chronic, or that lead to death? Why are children being abandoned? Why do they not have families or homes where they can be and feel loved and accepted? Why are marriages crumbling? Why are people filled with such bigotry and hatred? Advent pulls us to ask those very questions and forces us to be honest about the world in which Christ has come and continues and needs to come. And this is where we as the church live, in the in-between, in the already, in the not yet. So if you ever feel or wonder if your faith is struggling or if you don't know if you're going to make it to the next Sunday, you're in good company. Because that is precisely the type of world, that is precisely the type of darkness in which Christ's presence comes. If your life feels dark, then the hope and what God has made possible in Jesus is that a great light will in fact dawn. And I don't know where you find yourself, but why I love and why I give myself to the Christian faith and to the person of Jesus is because there is no shortcut. There is no denial of the pain and the, the darkness and the sadness. We actually worship a God who came into it, who came in the person of Jesus to deal with it. And so though Advent pulls us into darkness... It also offers us hope. It offers us the possibility of hope to live within the darkness. And this is where some of you are like, okay, good. So there might be a happy ending. But I love movies without happy endings, so we'll see, right? Who knows? But Advent pulls us into darkness, and it offers us hope in the midst of that darkness. And it's a certain type of hope. And I want to talk about three facets of that hope. That it's a given hope, that it's a resilient hope, and that it's a sustaining hope. And what do I mean that we have a given hope? Well, here's what I mean, that the hope that we have is actually external from us. That the hope that God has given to us by coming into the dark world in Jesus Christ is a hope that comes from God. And why is this good news? Because hope does not, does not rest with whether or not you have it. The reality of hope is external from you and it's given by God and that is good because it actually doesn't require you to keep up with it or to continue to have it. It is true no matter where you are. Despair or in a season of hopefulness, the hope that we have as Christians in the person of Jesus 
is a hope that is given to us by God, and it rests in his hands. But it's also a resilient hope. It's a hope that isn't weak. It's a hope that actually has cut its teeth on the darkness and the sadness. It's a hope that says God came to us in Jesus into this dark world to make things new, but also endured the pain of the cross. It's a hope that leads to life, but not before death. So it's a hope that is resilient. It's a hope that is strong, because it is not ours, it is God's. Because it is, it is a hope that sustains even through death into life. But it doesn't bypass death or the darkness or the sadness that comes with it. And that is good news that we believe in a God who knows our stories. Not abstractly, but having lived it in Emmanuel, God with us, in Jesus Christ. But it's also a sustaining hope. It's a hope that sustains us. It's a hope that keeps us going. Because it is given, it's external from us. Because it is resilient and doesn't deny the fact of death or darkness or sickness or abandonment. It is a hope that sustains. And the way that this hope sustains is that we know that God is present in all of it. In the darkness, in the light, and in the coming light. And part of that sustenance, part of the way that happens, is by God, through Jesus, and the Spirit of God, that his presence is ongoing through us. So that we, as people, offer a hope to one another and to the world. That we bear witness to the very presence of God, to the very given hope, resilient hope, and sustaining hope that God has come to us in Jesus that God is continuing to be present, and that God will one day come fully. So it's a hope that sustains. And it's a hope that sustains by virtue of being there, being with us. Now, I mentioned Kate Bowler earlier, and I'm actually going to read a couple pages, that's right, a couple pages from her memoir called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, which I think is probably the best title in the world. Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. So before I read her pages, I want to give you a brief overview of her story. So Kate Bowler, as I said, is a university professor at Duke and rising academic star. She wrote the first actual history of the prosperity gospel. At age 29, she graduated with a PhD, having written her dissertation, and then she was given a professorship at Duke. And she's gone through a lot of different tragedies or sadnesses. At one point, she couldn't use her arms because her joints were really loose, and it actually made her incapable of using her arms. Her dissertation, she had to say it out loud so her parents could type it. It was difficult for her getting pregnant. It took her years. Her and her husband finally were able to have their son, Zach. Then at age 35, after having gone through all of this, she was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. And this is a story that she's written of her life that is attending to both the 
the promises that are offered in the prosperity gospel and that don't sort of match up with her life. And it's an undoing of the ways that she didn't even realize it, that she was holding to a life or to a faith that said, if I act a certain way, then God will do X. If I work hard, then God will give me X. And it was this undoing that allowed her to see all the ways in which she was attempting to control and to hold on to her life. But in, this, in the midst of this deep darkness, she couldn't do it anymore. And she's trying, to, she's trying to attest to some of what God has been doing in the midst of her life. So Kate, age 35, diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer, and it still has cancer currently, and is not sure what the end of it will be. She's able to, to undergo trials and, and different medical treatments that have continued her life, but she has no idea. And here she has a husband, she has a, a, a son with whom she, she wants to continue living, and, and she doesn't know where it will go. And so if there's anybody who's living in the darkness and who's been able to attest to at least the way God works within that darkness, it's certainly her. And I recognize in this, because I know it, not just because I imagine it, but I know that in this group of people, this story feels all too real. And it might not be the diagnosis of cancer. What it might be is an upcoming trial. What it might be is, is the uncertain future of of where you and your relationship with somebody might be, that you are living in the darkness and you don't know how to withstand it. So I want to offer you a few pages from this book because I think she, she says a lot of things that I couldn't say as well, but also that I think might be helpful and encouraging and ultimately building up in terms of our faith. And real quick, some of the context is while she was in this Season, She wrote a piece for the New York Times, and then a lot of letters came to her um, of, that people were resonating with or just wanting to give her advice. So she's referring to these. These are the three life lessons people try to teach me that, frankly, sometimes feel worse than cancer itself. The first is that I shouldn't be so upset, because the significance of death is relative. I like to call the people with that message the minimizers. Some people do it spiritually by reminding me that cosmically, death isn't at the ultimate end. It doesn't matter. In the end, whether we are here or there, it's all the same, writes a woman in the primer for youth. She includes a lot of praying hand emoticons. A lot of Christians like to remind me that heaven is my true home, which makes me want to ask them if they would like to go home first. (laughs) And maybe now. An atheist can be equally trite by demanding that I immediately give up any search for meaning. Someone else writes that my faith is holding me hostage to an inscrutable God. I should let go of this guesswork, these ridiculous theological reasons, and realize that we're living in an uncaring and neutral universe. But the message is the same. Stop complaining and accept the world as it is. The second lesson comes from the teachers who focus on how this experience is supposed to be an education in mind, body, and spirit. I suppose that this is the ultimate test of faith for you, one man muses, hoping that I will have the good sense to accept God's will. Anyway, he says at the close of the letter, I'll pray for your remission, and if you die, that your suffering is minimal. Thanks, Joe from Indiana. 
Sometimes I want every know-it-all to send me a note when they face the grisly specter of death, and I'll send them a cat poster that says, hang in there. I hope you have a Job experience, writes one man bluntly, and I can't think of anything worse to wish on someone. God allowed Satan to rob Job of everything, including his children's lives. Do I need to lose something more to learn God's character? In these moments, I love the people who write to me with their simple, unvarnished conclusions. Um, yeah, writes a young man after describing how diseases are cutting down his family one by one. The question of WTF is pretty much on target every day. The hardest lessons come from the solutions people, who are already a little disappointed that I'm not saving myself. Keep smiling. Your attitude determines your destiny, says Jane from Idaho. And I am, I'm immediately worn out by the tyranny of prescriptive joy. Because of the, my background in the prosperity gospel, I receive hundreds of letters from those inside the movement. These are people who, crushed by the weight of solution-focused theology, have been unable to grieve. I receive so many stories like this, the laments of bereaved people who are asked to keep a smile on their faces. There's a trite cruelty in the logic of the perfectly certain. Those letter writers are not simply trying to give me something. They are also always tallying up the sum of my life, sometimes for clues, sometimes for answers, always to pronounce a verdict. But I am not on trial. The letters that really speak to me don't talk about why we die. They talk about who was there. When you were afraid... That the end had come, were you alone? I read something in the newspaper the other day that summarized the findings of the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, and yes, there is such a thing. Thousands of people were interviewed about their brushes with death in every kind of situation, being in a car accident, giving birth, the death of a family member, etc. And many described the same odd thing, love. I'm sure I would have ignored the article if it not, had not reminded me of something that happened to me, something I felt uncomfortable telling anyone. It seemed too odd and too simplistic to say what I knew to be true, that when I was sure I was going to die, I didn't feel angry. I felt loved. At a time when I should have felt abandoned by God, I was not reduced to ashes. I felt like I was floating floating on the love and prayers of all those who hummed around me like worker bees, bringing notes and flowers and warm socks and quilts embroidered with words of encouragement. They came in like priests and mirrored back to me the face of Jesus. When they sat beside me, my hand in their hands, my own suffering began to feel like it had revealed to me the suffering of others. A world of those who, like me, are stumbling in the debris of dreams they thought they were entitled to and plans they didn't realize they had made. Just one final section. That feeling stayed with me for months. In fact, I had grown so accustomed to that floating feeling that I started to panic at the prospect of losing it. So I began to ask friends, theologians, historians, pastors I knew, and nuns I liked, what am I going to do when this feeling is gone? And they knew exactly what I meant, because they had either felt it themselves or read about it in great works of Christian theology. St. Augustine called it the sweetness. Thomas Aquinas called it something mystical, like the prophetic light. But all said, yes, it will go. The feelings will go. The sense of God's presence will go. 
There will be no lasting proof that God exists. There will be no formula for how to get it back. But they offered me this small bit of certainty, and I clung to it. When the feelings recede like the tides, they said they will leave an imprint. I would somehow be marked by the presence of an unbidden God. It is not proof of anything, and it is nothing to boast about. It was simply a gift. I can't reply to the thousands of emails with my own five-step plan to divine health or series of powerful formulas which guarantee results. I suppose I'm like the man who wrote to me to say that in the face of unspeakable tragedy, he felt the presence of God in the same long, dark night. Yes, that is the God I believe in. We believe in a God because he has come to us in Jesus. That in the darkness of Advent, their God was. That the hope that we have is given to us in the person of Jesus. So the questions that Advent raises, why, God, are you here, and what does the suffering mean? Advent is not like the teacher, as she described, nor like the minimizer, nor like the solutions people, because the answer that Advent gives to those questions is a person, the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus who shows us, who tells us that God himself is not somewhere else, is not somewhere outside of the darkness, but is in it, is in your darkness, is in my darkness, is in our darkness. So Advent, yes, begins in the dark, but there in the dark we discover the presence of God. And thanks be to God that that is true.